you would, uh, take the Bibles in the pews or take a look at the screens uh, or bring your own pew Bibles to, to, that would be useful. And let's look at the first few words uh, of the book of James. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Count it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. The person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. May God add his blessing to, to this reading of Scripture. And I know that our pastor is going to speak with us about him today. And so I'd ask that you pray courage upon him, pray his spirit upon him, pray wisdom upon him, and pray that our hearts might be open for his words. Let's pray. Lord God, Pastor Keith comes forward to speak your words this morning. We entrust that word, Lord, to him, for you have granted it to us. And we ask that you might strengthen him beyond any human strength so that the words that he is sent here to say today, he might say to us, that they might permeate our hearts and be put into play in our living. In Jesus' name, bless Pastor Keith this morning. Amen. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. James is a book that I love to, to read and I love to, to uh, study and preach through because he has a way of threading the needle between what it means to be a Christian and also what Christians are supposed to do. So there's this understanding of, of who we are as believers, and then also this understanding of how we're supposed to act as believers. And, and so what I thought I'd do this morning is just sort of give you a little bit of introduction to who James is and talk about this book and then move into the first sections of the Scripture. And I would encourage you to, as Pastor Mike said, uh, bring your Bibles or have your Bibles open and be ready because we're going to be moving through this book uh, verse by verse. We're going to skip nothing and, and we will be plowing through this thing over the next few weeks. And, and my, my hope would be that you would come to worship having already read the scripture for the, for the week and, and, and thinking of it in your own mind and praying through it and, and seeking what God would say through you. I think you'll find it more meaningful that way. And then, of course, to, to maybe go home and reread what we've talked about because I think that it's going to work best if, if your mind is constantly focused on these things. So that way, when we come to worship, uh, you know, we're all, we're all tracking with the same stuff together. So let's talk about James for, for a moment. Who, who is James? Who is this man uh, that we see written, uh, who writes this book? First of all, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He was not a disciple. He had the same mother, different fathers. So 
while Jesus was the mother of Mary and the Holy Spirit, James was the, the uh, son of Mary and of the carpenter Joseph. So grew up in a house with Jesus as your older brother. Now, how do you think that must have went? You know, Jesus had many brothers and sisters, the scripture tells us. And, and I wonder what that was like growing up in that house. I wonder if Jesus ever heard, you know, Mary and Joseph say things like, why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> you know, you ever hear that in your house? Why can't you be more like him? He's so good. And they're just probably, yeah, he's such a goody two sandals. I don't know what we're going to do with that guy. You know, did you get that? Come on, people. It's, 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 there's heat in this room. So I know you can't say that, that you're too cold to think. So, but here's what I find really remarkable about James. He grows up with Jesus Christ and sees his brother. And the Bible tells us that throughout Jesus' ministry, James is not a believer. He doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In John chapter 7, we, we see that, that the Scripture tells us that Jesus' brothers and, and, and sisters did, they didn't receive him. They didn't understand who he was. And, of course, Jesus himself also says that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And what he meant by that was that oftentimes those who were closest to and in relationship with most often fail to see our greatness. You know, and they fail to understand who we really are. That's that's why, like in the church world, and Pastor Mike knows this. He he gets calls like this a lot of times. You know, an expert is someone who lives fifty miles away. So Pastor Mike could get up here and say something profound, and we can just go, "Yeah, we've heard that before, right?" But then another church calls him, and he travels, drives fifty miles, and they're like, "Wow, this guy's brilliant. Where did you know what what are they doing in Marion over there? You know, isn't it great?" So that was true even for Jesus. You know, he, he grew up in this home and, and his brothers just had to look at him and say, no, not you. You can't be the Messiah. I mean, you're a pretty good guy, you know, but really the Messiah? But something happens in James's life and we get just a snippet of it in the scriptures, but it's, it's very, very important that we understand this. It tells us in Acts chapter 1 that, and this is of course after the resurrection, after Jesus has appeared to his disciples and then gone up in, into heaven and given them this mission, it says that as they gathered together in, in, in the upper room that, that uh, Jesus' mother and his brothers were there. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it is, we, we read that Jesus appears to James and then to all the apostles. So we have this very interesting interaction that takes place sometime after Jesus' resurrection, where Jesus goes to his brother James, and he has this meeting with him. He has this conversation with him. And we don't know what he says exactly, but what we do know is this. After this encounter, James is a changed man. He moves from not believing that Jesus is the Son of God to becoming the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. In fact, it's James who the Apostle Paul says he reports to when he first becomes a believer and he finally goes up to meet with the, with the, the apostles in, in Jerusalem. He says, I met with, with the apostles and I met with James. It's James who in the, the Jerusalem council in, in, the, in the book of Acts, as they're deciding these controversial issues, hears arguments from both sides and stands up and says, I have heard this, I've heard that, and I decide, meaning that he has authority. It's James who the, who the history of the church would reveal us is the, is the, the bishop of Jerusalem and, and has all this authority and power. Something happened when James had this post-resurrection encounter with Jesus. James had a nickname. He was called, he had two nicknames. He was called James the Righteous, 
which of course, you know, that, that sounds like a good name for a saint, right? But then he was also called Old Camel Knees. Now, that probably wasn't meant to be a compliment, but indeed it was. Have you ever seen somebody with camel knees before? You know, have you ever seen a camel's knees? They're, they're like all disfigured and whatever, you know, and James had knees like that apparently because tradition tells us that he would spend hours upon hours at the temple on his knees on the concrete floor or the, the rock floor in prayer every day. So his body was physically transformed by his prayer life. And, and indeed, when, when James would meet his death, and there are two reports of, of how James died, uh, he, he, he may have been stoned to death, but he also may have been thrown from the roof of the temple by the Romans. But when he, when he was to be put in his coffin, tradition tells us that his body was so deformed that they had a hard time straightening out his legs because they were just stuck in this position from all of his hours spent in prayer. But yet what's interesting to me about the book of James is you would never know that just from reading it. You would never know that he had this special relationship with Jesus. You'd never know that he had the inside track because unlike the way that, that a lot of people work in the world today, is James makes no special mention of his relationship with Jesus in terms of a special status that he carries. He simply refers to himself as a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if he's saying, I am nothing. I'm just a servant. I grew up with him, but I'm just a servant. Powerful. So it is this man, James, who writing to us 30 years or so after the, this encounter with Jesus, comes to the church to write in chapter 1 a simple message. And the simple message is this. The mature Christian is patient in trials. The mature Christian is patient in trials. This is essentially the message of chapter 1. You're either in a trial, headed for a trial, or recovering from a trial. Now, we're going to talk about that today because all of us, and, and, and indeed we meet before the service every, every Sunday morning, we talk about what's going on with our people. And, and there's a lot of people in our, in our body that are going through many trials. And James wants to talk about that. He wants to talk about because the truth is this. All of us at one point in time will encounter trials. And if you haven't yet, you surely will. And of course, James himself encountered many trials, as did his brother Jesus. And his message to the church, to all of us, is that we are to be patient and joyful in these trials because of what we can do once we learn perseverance. You see, the goal of the Christian life is not to avoid trials, but rather to persevere through them. Now, this right here is a big deal because oftentimes, I know I do this, but oftentimes we can judge our proximity to God and our relationship with God and how good of our Christian life, how good our Christian life might be on the basis of trials. We could say, hey, things are going pretty good for me right now. God loves me. God's close. But when we go through a trial, what do we pray? God, where did you go? What happened? Did I get off track? What's the deal here? God, something's not right because I'm enduring a trial. And God, that's surely not what life is supposed to be about. See, we have this belief that if we're good Christians, then God will spare us from trials. Now, I will say this. That's partially true in as much that many trials that we face are the result of our own sin and are self-inflicted, and if we walk in obedience to Christ, then indeed we will be spared many trials. But there are those trials in life that are not the result of our own sin, 
but are just the result of living in a broken world with sinful human beings all around us and a broken universe. Trials are a part of life. Now, I'm not saying that they're not a big deal or I'm not diminishing the pain that we Christians endure through trials. And James isn't either. And neither does Jesus. Jesus would say, uh, celebrate with those who celebrate and mourn with those who mourn that when we encounter trials, we're to band together as believers in Christ and help one another through those trials. But what's important is how we react to trials. See, we really have three choices when it comes to how we deal with trials in our lives. And, and basically what we can do is we can either accept our trials blindly. And when I say accept, I don't mean like, like comprehend. I just mean we just go, oh, well, that's just life. And just walk through them without any, any greater thought. We can also uh, potentially reject the trial and say, no, I, this, this can't be right. There's no way this can be happening and bury our heads in the sand and act like it's not real. Or the third choice is we can redeem our trials. We can redeem our trials. Now, what does it mean to redeem a trial? Basically, to redeem a trial means to take something that's bad or that's negative or that's hurtful and turn it into something that is a gain for us. Turn it into something good. Turn it into something positive. Indeed, that's what James is teaching us to do. He's teaching us how to redeem trials. You see, we have to ask ourselves, why does God allow these trials? Why does God bring them to us or allow them into our lives? And the answer is this, because God according to James, is producing something in you that is valuable, incredibly valuable. You see, it's what trials can produce in us that matters. And according to James, what trials can produce in us is perseverance. Perseverance, which walks hand in hand with maturity. Because to be mature is to understand that life is hard and that you have to learn to keep going through whatever may come at you. See, a mark of immaturity is to remain stuck in a tough spot for too long or to give up and lose hope completely. It was Winston Churchill who said, when you're going through hell, you you keep going. And sometimes that's just true in life. When we go through trials, there are some people that have this ability just to keep moving forward. And, and, And I think they find themselves through those trials more quickly than others, but there's also this tendency sometimes for some of us who endure a trial to just just become paralyzed and, and to not move and to not think and to, to just stay in one spot and become hopeless and desperate and, and to just try to, to, to wish it away or to act like it's not happening and, and to, to learn nothing from it. You see, no one can learn perseverance without trials. It's impossible. It's like trying to learn to repair a car without it ever having broken down. And we all know that in life and faith, we go through a series of breakdowns, don't we? And our problem is that we as a society, and especially as a Christian society, have become addicted to this idea that we should never suffer. Not only that, but we have attached a certain sense of entitlement to our lives that when violated causes us to to blame God for our sufferings. As though he owes us or has promised us a life free from all pain and trials. Do not believe the American myth that God opposes the suffering of his people. I know that might sound harsh to say, but think about it. What God opposes is not the suffering of his people. What God opposes is immaturity and lack of faith. 
Now, God does not inflict suffering on us because it brings him some pleasure. Merely God allows the suffering of life to occur in us and, 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 and sometimes puts us in these difficult situations for a greater purpose. That's what it means to redeem them. But we will never get that message if we get caught up in this idea that it should never be or should never happen. Now, why does God desire us to become mature? Because perseverance and maturity are godly attributes. God perseveres. So one might ask then, well, does God endure trials? And the answer is, of course he does. Read the scriptures. Just look at the Bible. Look at Jesus. He endured all trials without fail. Jesus went through some incredible dark times, didn't he? But he always kept moving. My, my favorite scene in The Passion of the Christ is not the scene where there's, uh, you know, Jesus on a cross or, or being whipped or some dramatic interchange between Jesus and an apostle or the high priest. It's really the, the, the split second at the end of the movie. And if you're not careful, you might miss it. But it's the perfect picture of enduring a trial and persevering and maturity when after his crucifixion, Everything goes dark, and then you hear that great music that, that begins to, to stir your soul, and then you see just a crack of light, and then, as in a flash, you see the resurrected Jesus, just for a moment, walk out of the grave. And on his face is a look of perseverance. On his face is a look of determination. And in his heart, you can sense that he was not going to stop moving, no matter the great trial that he faced. He kept going through it, and because of that, he won victory for all of us. God endures trials, and he perseveres. So we are, according to James, to count it all as joy. Not because trials are fun, but rather because of what they can produce in us if we endure them patiently and joyfully. You see, if we don't endure them patiently and joyfully, it only means that they'll last longer and we'll learn nothing from them. They'll fail to produce the maturity that we need. Just because you suffer does not mean that you will learn perseverance or maturity. Many people wind up poor, spiritually speaking, hopeless, bitter, and defeated. You see, you have to make a choice when you go through trials, don't you? You're going to go through trials. The question is, will you suffer poorly or will you suffer well? You get to make that choice. And James, of course, is encouraging us to suffer well. He's encouraging us to see what God can do through your suffering if you let God do so. And he goes on to say that when you learn this, you have found the true secret to lacking nothing. To lacking nothing. Because if Jesus is all you need, and when Jesus is all you have, you're still okay. So how we respond to trials reveals many important things about us, doesn't it? First and foremost, it reveals what we really expect from God. Now, I will say this. In, in my years of, uh, you know, being in ministry and just life and just walking through this world, unmet expectations are, are the root cause of, of probably all of our relational issues, aren't they? When we have an expectation of someone or they have an expectation of us and that expectation doesn't get met, whether it's proper or healthy or whatever, when it doesn't get met, someone's usually unhappy. And, the, and what we have to realize is the way we respond to trials reveals what we really expect from God. 
Because it's the same thing. If you have unmet expectations of God, then, then you too can become bitter and there can be relational strain. So the question is, what do you really expect from God? That is revealed in a trial. So dig deep and ask yourself this morning, what do I really expect from my relationship with God? So when, many, when trials come, many people act like God has let them down because their expectation was that God would protect them from pain, especially if they've been religious, especially if they've been moral, especially if they've been generous, especially if, they have, if they've avoided sin. We can easily fall into this trap that God owes us and that God is going to protect us and, 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 and keep us free from those things. But we have to ask ourselves, is that a healthy expectation? Is that a biblical expectation? And the answer, of course, is no. Where does that come from? See, James points out that this is a very unhealthy expectation, and so does Jesus, so does Paul, so does Peter, and so does virtually every other biblical writer. See, this expectation that we have comes from a few places, I believe. First and foremost, it comes from our misunderstanding of the gospel. See, we believe the gospel is about how you're supposed to live, not about what you're supposed to believe or who Jesus is. We think the gospel is about, okay, well, follow the Ten Commandments, go to church, give, do this, do that. That makes me a Christian, and if I do those things, then, then you know, I'm, I'm good, and God will give me good. You know what that is? That's paganism. That's, that's false religion. That's this idea that the gods are angry, and that if you make the proper sacrifices, that the gods will then be appeased, and that they will make it rain, or they will make it stop raining, or they will give you victory in battle, or they will make you fertile, or they will provide crops, or they will do whatever. But it's all dependent on this idea that the gods are angry, and if you give them the right sacrifice, then you can please them, and they'll give you what you want. Therefore, you, you do all these things. That's paganism. That is not the gospel. That is not the Bible. But it's easy to let that creep into our mindset and believe then that, well, we just expect this from God. We also can get this from people who would seek to control us. There are those who would seek to tell you that if you have a trial and you do what they tell you to do, you'll be free from that trial. So you turn on the, the, the TV preacher channel and they say, look, if you're struggling financially, you just need to give to our ministry and, and, and God will bless you. God will reward you tenfold and you'll get all this. Or, you know, you, you have a health condition and if you would just send a gift to this ministry or do this or do that, then God will heal you. God will take you out of that trial. God will spare you. And if you just do what I tell you, then all of a sudden God will, will have to bless you and take you out of that trial. There are those that would control you with this idea that you can expect God to take you out of trials if you do what they would tell you. But that's not biblical. <clears throat> it's true God loves to bless us. It's true God loves to give us gifts, but the gifts that God gives us oftentimes are not those that we seek. The gifts that God gives us are his presence. And oftentimes we, we fail to see what God gives us because we don't recognize, because it's not what we want. So how we respond to trials reveals what we expect from God. It also reveals what we value the most. See, if you value more than anything a, a, a comfortable, pain-free, easy life, if that's your value, then when it's taken from you or when that's not reality, you will fall apart. If that's your idol, then when it's not there, <clears throat> you lose. Now, for some people, what they value most is, is, is comfort and whatever, so they'll seek God and believe that if they give to God, God will bless them. 
for others they value most is, is their, their family. So they, they go to church and they read the Bible because they believe that it's going to give them a happy family. But how many people have ever seen or ever lived in a Christian life where even with the Christianity and with the gospel, families still fall apart? What do you do then? Some people think that, that they're the thing they value most is their own health. So they, you know, I've seen these Bible diets where they think, okay, well, the secret to a healthy diet is in the Bible. So I'll, I'll eat nothing but this or that or whatever because the Bible says, and then I'll be healthy. But then that's taken away. What do you value most? You see, if what you value most is maturity in your faith, if what you value most is a relationship with Jesus, then in a trial you can have joy because Jesus Christ has promised that when you endure trial, he is right there with you. He hasn't left you. That's how you can have joy. When you recognize what God is doing in you, when you recognize that trials can make you more mature, can help you to learn perseverance, can make you more useful for the kingdom, can make you more godly, then and only then can you have joy in a trial. So when you see someone who's joyful in a trial, you can recognize that person as, as, as wow, that is a godly person because they're understanding what God is doing in them because they value it the most. And of course, the third thing is how we react in a trial reveals how much we love God. See, many people turn away from God completely in times of trial because they become angry with God. And what we can learn is that we love God only when God does what we want. But when, we, when our love for God increases during trials, it shows indeed that he is our greatest love. Now that, of course, is not easy. And it takes an incredible amount of what James says is wisdom to do that. Notice he changed these two things together. He changed joy and in suffering and trials, maturity, and all of that. He changed it to wisdom and says you've got to have wisdom in order to do this because it goes so counterintuitive to the way that we think or the way that we live our lives. See, most people can't have joy unless their circumstances are good. But James says that's not right. And in order to recognize that and apply it to your life, you've got to have wisdom. And James promises that this wisdom is something that God will give to those who ask him in faith for it. Who ask him in faith for it. Did you catch that? Wisdom isn't something that you go to the bookstore and read about. Wisdom isn't something that you go to a, a, a doctor and get. Wisdom isn't something that your friend down the street who doesn't know Jesus gives to you. Wisdom is from God. Otherwise, it's not wisdom. Psalm 110, 111 verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. You see, wisdom, I'm not talking about knowledge, I'm talking about wisdom. That begins with a right understanding of who God is and who you are. And if you don't have that, you will never be wise. You might be a brilliant scholar. You might be a, 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 an educated person according to the world. And it's possible to have all of that and completely have no wisdom from a scriptural point of view. Because if you don't know who God is, you've kind of started on the wrong track, to put it mildly. Now, I have another scripture I want to share with you because I think it's important as we talk about wisdom to understand that the world's wisdom, you know, is countercultural to this. And, and for those of you who are trying to learn to do this, you're trying to learn to endure patiently in trial, you say, I just don't know how to, it doesn't make sense. 
all my friends around me are telling me that, it, that, it, that, that I should just forget about God, that I should quit doing this, that I should just focus on me, and, and I want to make myself happy, and I got to start, stop worrying about everybody else and just worry about me. That's the world's wisdom. Find out how to make yourself happy, no matter the cost, no matter the pain it inflicts on anybody else, and do it. That's the world's wisdom. But here's what God says about the world's wisdom, and I know you can't read that. I'm just putting it up there so you could see that I didn't make this up. You would never accuse me of that, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. Listen to this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, if you want the wisdom to get through your sufferings, see God's perspective on your life, not your own. We are too short-sighted. And God alone sees the big picture. Now notice quickly as we close that James sees the suffering Christian as the person in a high position while he equates the rich person, the one who's not suffering, with a lowly position. He says that the rich will fade away even as they go about their business. That means that it's possible that you can have the whole world and still lose your soul. It means that your life fades into meaninglessness when all you have is wealth and you have not God. When God is not part of your life, you can, have it, you can have everything but still fade away. Consequently, when you have God, even though you may be weak and poor, you can still have it all. And this isn't just talking about heaven. James calls this the crown of life, referring to life that begins here on earth when you get to know Jesus, which is far greater, this crown, than the crown of worldly successes, which come and go, which fade away quickly. The crown of life endures forever. I would ask you this morning, which crown are you living for? James reminds us with which his words, with which one matters. And with his life, he also shows us how it was done. I wonder what that conversation was like when Jesus appeared to his little brother. I wonder if Jesus shared this encouragement with him because he knew the trials that James would face. And indeed, he would face them. And he did. He faced them all well. May the same be true for you and I. A quote that's often attributed to Mother Teresa, not the Bible, Mother Teresa, says that God will never give me more than I can handle. 
I, I would just sort of add to that and say, God will never give you more than he can handle. If you're looking for you to handle it, you might as well call it quits. Don't look to yourself to handle it in trials. Let God handle your trials.